we talked a little bit, I guess, last week, kind of about what is going on in Israel and some prophetic things and end times things. And I don't know if you have any questions, even with what other things have happened this week in Israel, and even as you read your Bible, maybe, hopefully, this week and looked at through some of that lens. But does anybody have questions about what's happening right now in the world and how that kind of ties into the Bible or doesn't tie into the Bible? Because honestly, we don't know specifics on that. But do you have any questions you want to ask? Yes, Al? Okay, and, th- and this is interesting, okay. The Gaza Strip, and if I don't know how many of you have seen a map, but really the Gaza Strip, that's literally what it is. It's just a little strip of land, and it is a very small place. But a lot of people live in that very small place. And so what has happened over the years with Israel since they have been a nation is you might even remember some of this. I mean, it goes back to Jimmy Carter, then especially through the Obama years, Clinton years, you had a lot of politicians trying to promote basically two states or two countries or two nations there in what we would consider Israel, the nation, from a landmass standpoint, if that makes sense. And so what has happened over the years with Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and with the West Bank, So Gaza is basically over close to Tel Aviv. It's on the coast, basically. And then the West Bank is over Jerusalem on that side of Israel. And so what you've had with that is you've had politicians promoting, well, they can have two states or two nations and they can live in peace. Yeah, good luck with that, okay? That ain't happened in history biblically, right? Okay, it's never going to happen. But sounds good, so we've had politicians pushing for that. Well, Sometimes in Israel you have doofuses in power too who have allowed basically strips of land or strategic places to be occupied or taken over by Palestinians or by Muslims. Okay, So it's a Jewish-Muslim fight is what it is. And so because of that, you basically have two nations, but you really don't because they're not considered. Palestine's really not considered a nation. It is by some people but it's really not a nation. But you have a president, you have a prime minister, whatever they call it. And so uh, the Gaza Strip's really just a piece of land that's occupied by a certain group of people, and Israel allows it, is basically what happens. They just allow it. And there is a border, and it's not a good border, but there is a border there, and basically Israel monitors that. The problem is there are Israelis that live right up against that, just like there are the West Bank. And so when you have groups like Hezbollah or Hamas, terrorist groups, they have pretty close proximity to come do whatever they want to, and there's not a lot Israel can do about it unless they put troops on that border all the time. Well, of course, right now, up until the last couple of weeks, it has been a relatively peaceful time. And of course... Hamas, the terrorist group, used that because Israel didn't have their defenses up. They didn't have their guard up. And then they, that's how they infiltrated the country and kidnapped and did what they did. And so uh, it's just interesting times. And it's crazy some of the ideas people have. But again, all these politicians don't have a Christian worldview. They don't have a biblical worldview. They don't understand history. Most people don't understand history. That's why we repeat it over and over again. So that's kind of, that, did that answer your question? Yes. 
Okay, good. Yes, sir? No. Yeah, it's a very good question, isn't it? It is. It's because of the Jordan River. See, and I mean, you know from biblical history, the Jordan River is very important from a biblical perspective, and it even goes to the Dead Sea, runs from Galilee to the Dead Sea. And so it is the west bank of the Jordan River because the Jordan River, the west bank's on the west side of that. So just think about that from a strategic standpoint, biblical standpoint, what Israel gave up when they gave up the west bank. I mean, it's pretty important, especially in relation to Jerusalem. I mean, it's really important. But they gave that. I don't even remember when the West Bank was formed. I mean, it was many years ago. But uh, it's been, I can't remember what. I'm trying to remember the president that kind of spearheaded that. I can't remember. But it's been a while. I don't know if it goes back to Clinton or Carter. It kind of started with Carter, I think. But. No, no, no. Not from a biblical perspective. No. I mean, they've given up a lot of land. At one time they did after when, as we know it today, as Israel was formed, they were occupying most of the land that God had promised them from a biblical promised land perspective. But now they've given up territories like the Gaza Strip and the West Bank over time. And it's very strategic territory for them from a military standpoint. And so... But yeah, that's why it's the West Bank. It is. Okay, any other questions? Speak now and forever hold your peace. Yes, Miss Jean. Israel <laughs> war. Well, that's a big can. I mean, that's probably a whole lesson on the Ezekiel war and what that is. And in like anything in prophecy, what you read in Ezekiel can be interpreted many ways and can be interpreted from a time frame perspective prophecy in many different views of prophecy, if that makes sense. And so uh, maybe we'll go back and look at a little bit from Revelation perspective, Ezekiel and Daniel perspective, because this is always the question that comes up, especially when you bring up Ezekiel and Daniel well, what role does Russia play in this? And what role does China play in this? And what role does Iran play in this? And all those different things. Uh, so over the next few weeks, we might look at that and revisit some of that, what we looked at in Revelation and Daniel. Because if you remember, it goes way back now, but we, uh, we started with the prophecy that Jesus gave throughout the Gospels, specifically Matthew 24, 25. Then we looked at Daniel. Then we went to Revelation is kind of how we studied from a prophetic standpoint. And so we'll revisit some of that over the next few weeks and talk specifically about the Ezekiel War if you want to know what I think about it. Uh, I mean, some too you have to be careful because especially Revelation, a lot of it's metaphor and a met metaphorical. And so you have to try to decipher, well, what is metaphor and what is real and what is really going to happen? And so sometimes that's difficult, especially something that is going to happen that we haven't seen happen yet. And so it does make it very, very difficult as you're interpreting prophecy. And so I have a different opinion than most people, probably, but uh, especially from a Southern Baptist perspective, because I don't believe some of the things most people preach about that. 
they, I think they take it way too literal, very literal. And I don't think most of that is literal on that. So, but we, yeah, we'll talk about that. That's a good one. Okay, anything else? Okay, if not, let's look at Acts chapter 16. Because I do believe, I really do believe this. Now, nobody else probably believes this or even preaches it this way. But I do believe the book of Acts is prophetic. I really do believe that. And the reason I believe that is because I believe the same way God started the church is the same way God's going to end the church. I really believe that. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about Northport Baptist Church. I'm not even talking about the church in the world today. I'm talking kind of about the church age, if that makes sense. Because ever since the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, until the return of Christ, and we don't know when that is, but until that day, from Acts 2 till the return of Christ, that is the church. That's the church age. That's the time period in which we're living. Because this is the period of time that God has instituted on this earth where people can be saved and where people can return to God through Jesus Christ. So that is the church age. And what has to be in place for people to come to Jesus Christ and be restored to God? The church. The church is an absolute necessity for that. Because how do people know about Jesus Christ? The church, right? The church has to share and communicate the good news, the gospel. They have to share the word of God. They have to share that because you have to have something to believe in to believe in something, right? So if you don't know to believe in Jesus, you don't know what to believe about Jesus Christ. So we have to communicate the good news the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ and what he has done. So the church is absolutely necessary for people to be saved. It cannot happen apart from the church. Another reason it can't happen from apart from the church is because salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the church. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so without the Holy Spirit, no one can be saved. So when you go to someone and communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to them, who do you take with you? The Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. He dwells in you. So that's why it's imperative for Christians to share the good news and to share the good news one-on-one, -on -one, to tell people in person about Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit is there working in you and through you and then in turn into that person. Now, does that mean that a person can't get saved by reading the Bible? No, that doesn't mean that because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God and they can get saved that way. They can get saved by listening to the radio or watching a YouTube or watching television. They can because the Holy Spirit can work that way. But how did God institute it? What is the way that He has told us? He's told us to go and He's told us to go tell and who is to go make disciples? You and me, everyone, the church in general. So the church is imperative. And we're living in the church age until Jesus Christ returns. And so the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church, working through individual believers. And so just like God started the church in Acts chapter 2 and everything we've been reading about, that's how it's going to end, just before Jesus Christ returns. Because one thing we know before he returns, we know this must take place because he says it in Matthew 24. He says that nations must hear. They must hear about Jesus Christ. 
So all nations on this earth, and that doesn't mean every person on this earth is going to hear, but I believe that means all people groups. That means all places, basically, that have a certain culture. That culture or that people group or that language is going to hear the good news. Then the end will come. Then Jesus Christ can return. So that's what we know has to take place. And for that to be a reality, the only way I believe that can be a reality is the same way it was a reality in Acts. Persecution has to come to the church, and it has to send us out. And it scatters us, just like it did in Acts chapter 8. And we're scattered to the corners of this earth. And when that happens, everyone will hear, and then Jesus Christ will come. So the things we're reading in the book of Acts is exactly the way it's going to be just before the return of Christ Jesus. And what excites me in our day is I see some of those same things happening in our day. I see them. And Jesus gives us some signs of what it's going to be like. And he tells us what to watch for just before he returns. And if you're watching pretty close, you see a lot of those signs. He said almost all of them. They're right in front of your face. So we are close to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, how close? I have no idea. Nobody else on this earth knows either. But we are getting close to the return of Jesus Christ. So what we're reading about in the book of Acts is happening all over the world today, and it's going to happen in your life and mine. If you're still here before Christ Jesus returns, it's going to happen to this church. We're going to be persecuted, and we're going to be scattered, and we're commanded when we are to share the good news wherever we go. That's what happens in Acts chapter 8, and the gospel spreads. And so we've been reading about the spread of the gospel since Acts chapter 8 all over the world. And so that's where we are in Acts chapter 16. It's the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've read Acts chapter 16, what we got to see is the spread of the gospel through primarily one individual named Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. But back in Acts chapter 7, 6, 7, and 8, he's the one persecuting the church. Now he's going out trying to build the church. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, he has a group that goes out on their second missionary journey. And it's he, it's Luke, who writes the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. It's Timothy, a young man, probably a teenager that he meets, asks his moms if he can go because he'll be beneficial for that work. And then it's another man named Silas. And their goal is to take the gospel basically to where Paul grew up. They want to go more towards Turkey. They want to go more towards the Middle Eastern area to share the gospel. And the Bible says specifically the Holy Spirit stopped them two different times. And then the Holy Spirit kind of drove them towards Europe. And they go to Greece. And they get to the island where Philippi is. And in Philippi, the first thing they do is go to the river and they share the word of God. They share the good news. And they win a lady to Christ named Lydia, who was a businesswoman. And then right after she comes to Christ, they start going around all over that city sharing the gospel. Then a little demon-possessed girl starts following them and just proclaiming that these men are from God and they're here to tell you uh, how to be right with God. And finally, Paul casts that demon out of her. And when he casts that demon out of her, Paul and Silas, the two of them specifically, are arrested. And they're taken to jail. But not only are they taken to jail, they are stripped of all their clothes. And the Bible says that they are beaten. They're flogged the way the Bible describes it, just like it did Jesus. They're flogged with wooden rods. So they are beaten with wooden rods. And they have wounds and they have cuts. They have bruises all over their backs. 
And then right after they're beaten, the Bible says they're thrown into the inner dungeon, they're thrown into jail. And then, of course, you know the story out of Acts chapter 16. At midnight, they are worshiping, they are praising God. And that's when God sends a miracle. He sends an earthquake. And when that earthquake comes just on that jail that they're in, their chains fall off, all the prison doors are open, but no one in that prison leaves. Not a single prisoner leaves because they're all amazed. And the Philippian jailer, which would be a Roman officer, runs in, and he thinks all the prisoners have left because it's pitch dark, and he's going to fall on his sword. Literally, he's going to commit suicide. He's going to kill himself. And Paul cries out to him, don't kill yourself, we're all here. And then the Philippian jailer, that Roman officer, asks one of the greatest questions in the Bible. He comes and falls at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And so today, we're going to look at that question for a moment. Because as a pastor... One of the questions I get asked, probably more than any other question I ever get asked, and I get asked a lot of of questions as a pastor, but one question I get asked a lot is, John, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I truly know that I'm saved? And that's important, especially where we live, for two reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is just cultural, honestly. Uh, If you grew up in the South, especially in Alabama, one of the things that probably happened to you, it's not as frequent now as it was, especially when I was growing up, but you were pretty much born into Christianity if you grew up here, right? And honestly, it is no different than if you were in a Muslim part of the world. I mean, if you grow up in North Africa, somewhere like Morocco or Egypt or somewhere like that, you're born into Islam. And you're Islamic because that's who you are. That's who your family is. You're born into it, right? And so you grow up being Islamic. Well, guess what? The same thing's true in Alabama. Okay, if you're born into Christianity, you grow up being what? A Christian. Now, does that mean you're a true follower of Jesus Christ? No, it doesn't. Because here's the thing. You can say that you're a Christian. You can even know all the things about Jesus Christ. You can even believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that He died on a cross for your sins. But does that make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. And so I guarantee you, if you go out and do some interviews from people who grew up here, don't go to the college campus where people grew up from everywhere, but if you go here and you ask the question, I guarantee if you ask the question, are you a Christian, a vast majority of the people, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you can ask them, well, how do you know you're a Christian? And they're going to tell you, well... I was a member of this church, or I went to vacation Bible school, or I was in Sunday school, or I was baptized, or my uncle was a deacon, or my dad was a pastor, or whatever answer they're going to give, they're going to have a response to you, right? So it's cultural. You were born a Christian. You grew up a Christian. So in turn, you think you're a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. So how do you know you're saved? Well, here's another point and problem, and this is universal, I think. 
But if there's one thing that Satan can do to pretty much make you powerless and your faith powerless as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is this. If he can get you to doubt, he's one. Right? Doubt, I'm, I'm just telling you, from Satan's perspective, doubt is a pretty good tool. Because what is doubt the opposite of? It's the opposite of faith, right? Okay, doubt and faith are on polar ends of the spectrum. Okay, so what is the Bible pretty clear about as followers of Christ? How are we to live our life as a follower of Jesus Christ? By faith, through faith. And I mean, Jesus even tells us, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, what can you do? Well, you can speak to this mountain. Move from here to there, and it will be moved. Does he not say that? Okay, mustard seed's a pretty small seed. Okay, so if you just have a little bit of faith, you can do incredible things for the kingdom of God, right? Okay, so here's a good question. Why isn't the church today doing incredible things for the kingdom of God? It's because we have more doubt than we have faith. And so what is the root that Satan would want you to doubt the most? Your salvation in the first place, right? If he can get you to doubt your salvation, do you really think you're going to have enough faith to speak to mountains? Do you really think you're going to have enough faith to pray and to see mountains moved in people's lives? And so doubt changes things, just like faith changes things. And so Satan's really good at keeping us in a doubtful state rather than a faithful state. And I'm telling you, from a church perspective, he gets more people to doubt their salvation than any other thing. That's where he works. That's where he tries to chip away the foundation. And when he does it, it changes everything in the person's life, but it also changes everything that can, God can do through that person's life. Right? Okay, so how can you know that you are saved? Well, I believe there are three marks, three evidences, three signs, whatever you want to say, that Acts 16 shows us of faith. True salvation in Christ Jesus. Because that's what that guy asked, that Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? So let's just relieve, read what the Bible says. So look at Acts 16, verse 31. Because this is the reply from the Apostle Paul. This is what he says. Verse 31. They replied, Paul and Silas, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. Okay, now that's a great statement, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay, I can say that to you, but if you don't know anything about Jesus Christ, what good does that do you? Big fat zero, right? What are you believing in? So did Paul and Silas stop there? No, they didn't. Read the next verse, verse 32. And they shared the word of the Lord with him 
and with all who lived in his household. Now one thing, especially Acts 16, but this is this way throughout the Bible, we're having to read kind of between the lines on some things because Luke doesn't specifically say here, well, the gentleman, the Philippian jailer, asked the question, then they shared, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It doesn't tell us, like, okay, well, what did happen next? Did the Philippian jailer ask any more questions? Did they get up and walk into his house at that moment? How long did this conversation take as they shared the word of the Lord with him? We don't get any of that. So we have to kind of read between the lines. But obviously here, they went from the jail to the house. Now this Philippian jailer probably had a house right beside the jail. It would be like, this is just reality. If you grew up in the South, you know most churches, especially when y'all were growing up, had pastoriums, right? Okay, it would be the same thing. So just like the pastor lived right next to the church, the jailer lived right next to the jail. So he would have had a house right next to the jail. So all they did was leave the jail and go to his house. And they shared the word of the Lord, the Bible. They shared about Jesus and all that Jesus had done and what they have to believe in Jesus to be saved. They shared that not only with the jailer, not only with his family, but his household. This would have meant all of his servants or anyone who lived there. That's what they did. Now, wouldn't you love to know what they shared? I would like to know what they shared. I would love to know what they shared. I would love to know what they told them about Jesus Christ and about the cross and about the resurrection and about all the things. I would love to know that. So we don't know that, but they shared the word of the Lord with them. Why? Why is that important? Because you got to know what to believe in. you got to know what Jesus Christ did. you got to know that He is God in the flesh and that He was born of a virgin and that He never sinned, not one single time, even though He was tempted with sin, just like you were in every single way, but He never sinned. And why is that important? Because the one who knew no sin is the only one who can die for your sin and be a sacrifice for that sin and die on a cross so that you can be forgiven. But then I had to, they had to explain to them the resurrection and why God raised Him from the dead so that we can be sure about everything they're telling us about Jesus. So whatever they told them, they told them what to believe in Jesus Christ. And that is important. And then look what happened next, verse 33. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. Okay. Now the first mark of salvation is not baptism. Now the first thing you should do after salvation is be baptized. Because that does, that is your way of letting the world know that you believe in Jesus Christ. But I don't believe that's a mark of salvation or an evidence. I believe it's a command that you should do. So what is, for me, the first visual sign? And everything I'm going to tell you here, this is both external and internal. This happens inside and this happens outside. So you're going to know it on the inside, but the world's going to see it on the outside. All of these. The first one's life change. Now why do I say that in verse 33? Well, what's the first thing he did after salvation? He washed their wounds, right? Okay, now let's talk about life change for just a minute. Why did they have wounds in the first place? Because this dude, this Roman officer, would have been in charge of their flogging, their scourging. He's the reason for their wounds. 
He's the reason that they have gashes and bruises and cuts all over their backs because they've been beaten with rods because he oversaw the beating. Now, he could have beat them themselves. I don't know that. Probably he didn't because he's a Roman officer. Probably he commanded someone to beat them. But he's still the guy in charge of their beating. So what's the first thing he does after he's saved? He takes care of those wounds. He washes them. He bandages them. Is his life different? Of course his life's different, right? His life has changed. And what changed about his life? One thing, Christ Jesus forgave him of his sins and changed him. Now people, when I say this, tell me this all the time. They say, John, nowhere in the Bible does it say life change is required for salvation. Well, I disagree with that, number one, because I think repentance is life change. Because do you know what repentance means? It just means turning. It means turning. You're walking one direction, you turn, and you walk the other direction. What is that? You're walking away from the life you used to live. That's what repentance is, okay? So I don't agree with that, but whatever. You can have it, and I'll tell you this. Maybe life change is not a requirement of salvation, but I guarantee you it's the evidence of salvation. It is. You're not saved without life change. You're just not changed. You're not saved without life change. It's a requirement, I believe, of salvation. Okay, now we can talk a lot of stories biblically, but my, one of my favorite stories biblically to just illustrate this is in Luke chapter 7. And it's right after, I don't know if you remember the story of Jesus raising the little widow's son from the dead. They're having a funeral for him, and Jesus basically walks over the casket and puts his hand on the little boy, and he rises from the dead, and he gives him back to his mom. Right after that, there is a Pharisee that invites Jesus to come to his house to eat. His name is Simon. And so Jesus goes to his house to eat. And while they are eating, while they're reclined around the table, the Bible says this specifically, a sinful woman comes into the room. Now, that's a generic, a nice way of saying a prostitute walks in. Okay, this lady is a prostitute. And what does she do when she walks in and when she sees and meets Jesus? The Bible says she falls to her feet and she's weeping. And her tears start to drop and to wet the feet of Jesus. And then she starts wiping his feet with her hair. And she's just worshiping him. And then the Bible says this. It says she takes an alabaster jar and she breaks it. And she anoints the feet of Jesus. Okay. Now let's talk about this a second because this is important. Okay, I told you just a minute ago, this lady's a prostitute. Do you know why she had an alabaster jar of perfume or expensive nard is what the Bible says if you have King James oil? Okay, that's a trick of the trade. Okay, prostitutes in that day would wear around their neck a little kind of necklace with an alabaster jar with an expensive perfume or nard in it. And why would they do that? Well, in Jesus' day, they didn't have running water, so they didn't have showers. They didn't take baths very often. Okay, so if you're trying to entice men to come be with you, I guess you needed to smell good. And so one of the tricks of the trade for a prostitute was to carry this around her neck so that she would smell good. Okay, that was one of the ways she enticed men. Okay, what did she do as a visible illustration of her former life that she's turned from it? She broke it, right? 
And she poured all of that out on the feet of Jesus. Did she turn from her life of prostitution and turn to Christ? Okay, is that life change? Pretty big life change right there. Was that visible to everyone in that room? Well, it was visible to Simon the Pharisee because do you know what he thought? The Bible says this. He said to himself, he said to himself, or he thought this, well, this man ain't much of a prophet because he wouldn't let this woman touch him if he knew who she was. And you know what the Bible says? Jesus answered his thoughts. Don't you know? You better be careful what you think. (laughs) Jesus answered his thoughts. And that's when he tells a parable. But that is life change. And I'm just telling you, when you come to Christ Jesus, your life changes. It changes. Now, I understand that there are degrees of life change, right? Okay, if I come to Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old kid, I'm probably not going to have as dramatic of life change as that prostitute, right? Because hopefully, that kid who comes to Jesus Christ is going to live for Jesus Christ, and they're not going to fall into that life of sin. And isn't that a whole lot better? Of course it is. Thank God for that, and that's what I pray for my kids, and I hope you pray that for your kids, your grandkids all the time. That's what you want. You want them to have the dullest testimony on earth. That's a great, that's a great thing. Dull testimonies are great. But there's still life change. Your life is different after you come to Christ Jesus. And so it's just imperative that your life is different. It is imperative. And people can see a difference in your life. They can see it. So let me give you my second thing that I think always happens when you come to Christ Jesus. Okay, look at verse 33. Look at verse 34. We just read 33. So right after they were baptized, this is what happens in verse 34. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Now what did they do? Right after they were saved, they rejoiced. They had joy. What does salvation always bring? It brings joy. Does it not? Yes, it always brings joy. And do you know why it always brings joy? Because that's who God is. Now, I'm just telling you, we could talk about this all day because Satan is masterful at taking something and turning it and twisting the truth into a lie. And like just we talked about propaganda of war, what's happening right now with Israel and Hamas, Satan is the creator of this, basically. He's the author and master of this. And so one of the things that he has just been masterful about is getting people to have an incorrect view of who God is. And I'm just telling you, even in the church, most people don't see God as joyful. Now, in your life, I'm not going to make you say this out loud, but I want you to think about how you view God. Is the first characteristic you view of God as joy? Probably not. It might be holy, it might be wise. It might be sovereign. It might be all these things, right? We have all these theological words for God. But how many people talk about God as a God of joy and God being joyful? How many times have you heard that preached? 
Why do we not preach that? Because that's who God is. Okay, in Luke chapter 10, the Bible says this about Jesus. It says Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit? He's joyful. What always comes right after salvation? How do I know? Okay. Go read Acts chapter 8. Okay, Acts chapter 8. Great chapter in the Bible when the church is scattered and they go preach the good news everywhere they went. Okay, Philip, for example, the Bible says, goes to the city of Samaria and he preaches the gospel. He does miracles. All incredible things are happening in the city of Samaria. And you know what the Bible says right after that? The city was filled with what? Great joy. Great joy. It doesn't stop there because then Philip is called by the Holy Spirit and he's called out of that place and he's taken down to the desert and he meets an Ethiopian treasurer. And this Ethiopian treasurer had been to Jerusalem and he had a copy of Isaiah 53 that's all about Jesus and the cross. And Philip goes up and asks them a question. You know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Think the church is important? Yeah, the church is important. And so Philip explains it to him. The Ethiopian says, hey, there's a body of water. What's keeping me from being baptized? Remember, he's in the desert. He's baptized, and you know what the Bible says right after that? He rejoices. He goes away rejoicing. Okay, does joy always follow salvation? You know where else it follows salvation? Not only in your life, but in heaven. Luke 15, 7, do you know what that verse says? There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who are righteous. So what happens when a sinner repents in heaven? There's what? Who do you think God is? He's joy. He's a God of joy. He's not sitting up in heaven with a scowl on his face waiting to thump you off the earth the second you mess up. That's not who he is. But is that not the picture people have of God? Of course it is. Satan has got us to believe a lie. He is a God of joy. Why do you think you're created in the first place? For God's enjoyment. He created you to enjoy you and to have a relationship with you. That's why you were created in the first place. And he created all of this for what? Not his enjoyment, but ours. He gave it to us. It's yours. Everything in it. Only one thing not to do. Only one thing. What did we do? The one thing we weren't supposed to do. And then what entered the picture? That's what entered the picture. And what takes away and robs our joy? Sin. Because it separates us from the joyful one. And what have we been searching for? For generation after generation after generation. The joy of who? Read Nehemiah. The joy of what is my strength? The joy of the Lord, right? So whose joy is that? My joy? It's God. It's who He is. Joyful. One of the best things you'll do, go read Luke 24. Go read the resurrection story. And go read what happens when Jesus finally comes into that room and amongst all the doubt and amongst all the fear and all the unknown, and He's standing there with the disciples. 
He tells them, guys, it's really me. And he lets them touch the wounds and the scars. And then do you know what the Bible says right after that when Jesus leaves? It says they are filled with joy and wonder. And then in verse 52, it says they go away rejoicing. Do you see the gospel there? In Genesis chapter 3, our joy is robbed. It's gone. It's stolen from us from sin. But the first thing God does after resurrection, He restores our joy. God is a God of joy. And what are we to be as followers of Jesus Christ? Joyful. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians? He says, always be what? Joyful. Be thankful. Never stop praying. Why? Because this is God's will for your life. And then if you don't do that, what does the next verse say? You do. You quench the Holy Spirit of God, who is the source of our joy. Listen to what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus even commands this. John 15, verse 9. Jesus says, I have loved you, Ezen, as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. And this is why He tells us this, what He says. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. We have joy as followers of Jesus Christ. And it should be evident in your life. And people should see it. Because it's a mark of salvation. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you this. One of the reasons that the church has failed, especially in the South, is because there's a lot of people in the church that aren't followers of Jesus Christ. But yet they're in the church. And they're some of the meanest, most bitter people on this earth. And do you think that's what the world wants? That ain't what I want. And it's amazing when you take someone whose life is changed by Jesus and they have peace and joy. And by the way, you can't have one without the other. You can't have joy without peace, and you can't have peace without joy. They go hand in hand. It's fruit of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Love, joy, peace. But when you have a person with joy, and they radiate that joy, people are attracted to them. Because that's what the world desires, because sin has robbed it from them. I'm just telling you, life change and joy are two marks of salvation. There's another one, but we're out of time.